Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is LA Session guitarist Andrew Sinewick. First of all, if there was one song that brought awareness to AI to the music industry, it was a track created by the anonymous Ghostwriter 977 called Heart on My Sleeve, which was released back in March. This would be just another track by an unknown composer, except that it featured superstars Drake and The Weeknd, or so it seemed. It turned out that neither of these artists actually performed on the track. Their voices were AI-generated. That didn't stop the song from becoming a viral hit, though, as Heart of My Sleeve quickly accumulated 600,000 streams on Spotify, 275,000 views on YouTube, 6.9 million views on Twitter, and 15 million views on TikTok, before it was taken down by Universal Music Group, which is the parent company of these artists' record labels. What most people don't understand was that Heart on My Sleeve was actually meticulously crafted, mostly without the use of AI. The only thing that was AI-generated was the famous fake vocals. So Ghostwriter cleverly submitted the song for Grammy consideration in the Best Rap Song and Song of the Year categories, since both of these categories credit the writer and not the artist. The Grammys had already ruled that a 100% generated song could not win a Grammy, but the only thing that was AI-generated in Heart in My Sleeve was the vocals. Still, the song was removed from Grammy consideration, not because of the AI involved, but because it didn't satisfy what they call the general distribution element. In other words, since it was never released for sales on services like Spotify, and was taken down quickly by Universal Music for copyright infringement of the name, image, and likeness of Drake and The Weeknd, it wasn't considered an official release. AI is a useful tool for music composition, production, mixing, mastering, and promotion, and we'll be seeing a lot more creative uses for it as we go along. For now, think of a superstar's vocal the same way as a sample and license it first. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, I thought I'd answer some questions that I keep getting, and the same ones pop up over and over, so I thought this was a good time to actually bring these up. The first one is, what would be the advantage of using something like ChatGPT4 for an entry-level producer? Well, ChatGPT is really useful in a lot of ways. First of all, you could use it for composition help. It can help suggest some chord changes, for instance, that you might not have thought of. And same thing with melodies. It's pretty good at generating lyrics. And although you don't want it for the full song, all you need is just one word or a phrase to get some inspiration that you could use later. 
Also, it's really good for music promotion. It could help you build business plans. It could help you figure out what kind of merch you want to buy. It can help you build release plans. There's all sorts of different things that it can do. So it's very useful for an entry-level producer or any producer for that matter. Something we're checking out. The difference between ChatGPT 3.5 and ChatGPT 4 is ChatGPT 4, you pay $20 a month, it works a little faster, works a little better, and it's a little more up to date. Another question that I often get is, what are the best recording levels? So this has changed over the years, but the fact of the matter is, we've pretty much settled on trying to record at somewhere around minus 10 full scale. So in other words, you'd like to hit that minus 10 with peaks that maybe go to minus six. That way you have a very healthy signal, it's not too loud, it's not too quiet, and it's pretty much what you need with enough headroom to use later on. Another one that keeps on popping up almost all the time is, where should I put an EQ and a compressor in the signal chain? Should the EQ go before the compressor or after the compressor? Generally, you'd want it after the compressor in most cases. And there are two reasons. The first is if you put it before the compressor and let's say you dial in a peak of 6dB at 2K, what's going to happen is the compressor is going to see that peak at 2K and that's the first thing it's going to work on to bring it back down. So it's counteracting what you just did with the EQ. Second reason is we usually don't tweak the compressor after we've set it. However, the EQ gets tweaked over and over during a mix. So if we have the EQ before the compressor and we're tweaking it, every time we tweak it, we have to tweak the compressor as well. So it's a lot more efficient if we set the compressor first, then the EQ right after it. I hope I've cleared up some of these questions and from time to time, we'll review some more questions that I keep on getting that are very, very common. My guest today is Los Angeles session guitarist, Andrew Sinewick, who's recorded for or performed with artists ranging from music industry icons, The Who and Alanis Morissette, to contemporary trailblazers like Lil Nas X and Megan Trainor. Other recent collaboration credits include Nick Jonas, Ariana Grande, Michael Bublé, Elton John, Seal, 98 Degrees, Josh Groban, Donna Summer, Bette Midler, and Carol King, among many others. Andrew has performed on projects that have garnered more than 30 Emmy nominations, 25 Grammys, and 20 Oscar nominations. He also boasts a guitar collection of over 100 guitars. Andrew's latest album is entitled Fun, and it's now available, and he'll be touring the West Coast soon as well. During the interview, we spoke about changing gear in order to get into session work, the trials of building his home studio, doing online sessions where the client doesn't attend, how he built his career, and much more. I spoke with Andrew via Zoom from a studio in Hollywood. Tell me how you started in the music business. Jeez, that's a that's a good question. I mean, it's I guess like everybody else, I was a garage band kid, you know? Wanted to be a rock star, that whole thing, played in bands. Eventually realized maybe I wasn't wired that way. How early along did you start? How old were you? I was eight when I started. My older brothers were way into music, and my middle I'm the youngest of three. My middle brother actually did play a little guitar, so he sort of fast-tracked me. Like This was like the Eddie Van Halen years, so he showed me how to play Eruption and all these Led Zeppelin songs and stuff like that. Very cool. 
Okay, so you played in garage bands and then decided that wasn't for you, or at least the live end wasn't for you. Tell me how you got into session work. First of all, where are you from? I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland. Okay. So it's a small town. It's a nice place to grow up, actually, for somebody who wants to be in a creative industry because it's not like a big city where the competition is so fierce that it's just impossible to break in anywhere. There's enough of an art scene where I could... Like by the time I was in high school, I was working at least three nights a week just playing solo guitar and kind of just learning everything that goes along with that, you know, about playing live and playing in bars and playing in restaurants and lugging your gear all over town. And again, kind of learned what I did and did not want to do, you know, ultimately. What I noticed about you is how fluent you are in different styles. So how did that happen? What did you start in what style, what genre did you start? Well, I I sort of grew up, I started playing in, let me think, I think it was 89. So still the tail end of like the flashy guitar years. And then of course Nirvana came like two years later and everything changed. And, uh, but to me, I, I didn't notice the difference. I liked both things. And then you have to factor in too, I grew up in a pretty, you know, suburban household where my parents they didn't know any musicians so they thought you know my dad was an accountant and my mom was a school teacher so to them it was like the thought of being a musician was either you're a rock star which you know god forbid because you're probably a a druggie and and who knows what else or more likely you're just going to end up on the street and have to come back and live in the basement you know it's like out here everybody's neighbor is an editor and a writer and they work on this and that. So it's kind of, it's very common. Everyone's in the entertainment business. So people, just your average person on the street understands, oh, sure, there's all these people doing creative things that I maybe are not household names, but uh, but that's a legitimate job. But for me, growing up where I, the way I grew up, it was almost like I had something to prove. And so my parents were like, well, you need to study classical guitar. They didn't know anything about music, but to them, that seemed just like a logical thing. Like, well, you need a good foundation. So I kind of begrudgingly did. But as I sort of got more into it and the music became more complex, I really did enjoy it. And I, you know, practiced a lot. There was a time where I even thought, should I just go into that and be one of those people that that's all they do and their nails are perfect and they live in a cave and do nothing but play solo guitar. But ultimately, that wasn't for me either. You have some pretty formidable jazz chops. Thanks. Yeah. I've always been drawn to difficult music. And so I ended up um, like, I think a lot of kids at that age, teenage years, it's anything that's flashy or perceived to be difficult is somehow appealing. So I definitely spent a lot of years um, in that realm. Actually, when I was about 15, I met a working jazz guitarist in my town. And again, it's the kind of thing where he's not a household name, but he was working all the time. And it wasn't such a huge pool of talent, I guess he would say. So I guess I stood out to him and he really took me under his wing and had, he would take me to gigs, have him, have me sub for him. He would kind of almost like open his books and show me like this gig, I really don't want to do, but look how much I'm going to get paid. And it will allow me to go do this other creative thing. And all that kind of stuff that is really hard to learn in school. Uh, I was kind of learning at a young age. And ultimately, I did decide to, you know, pursue a traditional music education, again, mostly because of my, uh, I guess you would say, parental, you know, urging to them. They, at that age, I think it was still like, 
you know, the thought of any type of success, it was like, well, you got to have something to fall back on. So I ended up at the University of Miami in Florida because a bunch of my um, influences had gone there, like uh, Pat Metheny or Steve Morris, or even, again, guys who aren't necessarily household names, but I knew them, like Will Lee, you know, playing on The Tonight Show all the time, or uh, Andy Timmons, uh, another great guitar player. All these people that I sort of got the impression like, oh, that school is a place for people that want to do things besides just play bebop, you know? Yeah, that's a really good school for, for that. I went to Berkeley. At the time I went, it was steeped in jazz. I mean, you were jazz or nothing. And I was not a jazz player. I did not have the touch for it. So as a result, I ended up in the composition program. Right. Probably a smarter place, ultimately. Well... If I have to say nice things about the course that I undertook, it was that the harmony classes were fantastic. So that really helped me later on. But as far as my chops and and everything, uh, you know, I got a lot more out of just playing live, you know, five nights a week. Yeah. That's how you know what works, you know? Yeah. But that's the thing growing up outside of New York or Nashville or LA is the the fact that you get a chance to do that as a working musician a little bit easier than I think you do here when you're growing up and learning. Right. It's funny. I do meet people though, that then like, oh yeah, my next door neighbor is such and such music producer. So he, you know, so I, when I was 15, I was playing on records or whatever. So there is that other thing. I, yeah. And it's, I almost feel like I probably moved here to LA with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Like, man, do I have what it takes to make it in this huge city? And like, it made me work 10 times harder than, uh, almost like sometimes I do see people and it's, and they almost take it for granted. Whereas for me, it was like, you know, this is where all my heroes live. And you know, this I just a little bit more special and more precious in a way. So when, when you graduated from University of Miami, then you just decided to move right out to L.A.? Pretty much, yeah. There was, um, I had done, you know, I, I was in a wedding band and I and that, I knew I didn't want to do that. And I was in an original band and I knew I was like, I, I looked around, I was like, I can't put my trust, my life, you know, in everybody else's hands. I, I don't know. I don't think I could do that. And I had done some touring for other kind of C-level artists, you know, tour bus, roadies and that kind of thing, but but not like big, big time. And for better, for worse, those first tours were real bad uh, and left me with a kind of kind of a bad taste in my mouth, which, you know, ultimately, again, was a good thing because I ended up um, I at that time, the Latin pop music thing was huge. And there was a little bit of an opening for a guitar player. So I ended up in the span of like two years, I played on a bunch of records for Cheyenne, Talia, a producer named Estefano, and then um, three records for Mark Anthony, including one that was like huge and sold, I don't know how many millions and won a few Grammys. And that experience for me was, you know, kind of the light bulb, the use whatever, you know, classic analogy you want. But I sort of felt like, oh, this is where I belong. I know that you know Tim Pierce, and he's a friend of mine as well. And it seems to me when I kind of compared you guys, it was like, well, Tim doesn't do what you do anymore. And it's almost like he passed the baton to you. It was the the feeling that I got. Was he influential to you? Big time. Yeah. Very influential, just coming up and checking out recordings that that he had done. And then again, it's funny, I 
when I moved here, I definitely tried to meet all my heroes and some of that went great and some of it went not so great to the point where I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to meet people naturally. And Tim, I met naturally and we just really hit it off because we're kind of wired the same way. And, uh, it's been great and he's taught me so much and yeah, he, he sort of has sort of passed the baton a little bit, you know, as he's moved into his next thing, which is so cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When you get into sessions, did you have to change what gear you were using? Yeah, big time. When I first moved here, again, growing up in Annapolis, Maryland, I was a huge PRS guy. At that time, in the scene that I was sort of working in, unfortunately, for whatever reason, I don't know whether it's the uh, the Nickelback effect or whatever <laughs> you want to call it, but there was sort of a weird vibe if I pulled out a PRS like on something. So I sort of made a transition to like everybody else, guitars that look old and are beat up and that kind of thing. Cause that's what people wanted to see. You know, that that's where that kind of like, I guess, street smart thing would come in where you go, eventually you go, well, look, people want to see you playing a certain thing for what, you know, people hear with their eyes. So I did sort of start gravitating towards, for example, those type of guitars. I've kind of been into, I, you know, again, being my age, I always wanted to have a rack anyways. But when I finally did start doing some of the big movie sessions where it was like, oh, the main guy can't make it these two days. Can you come in and sub? The engineer would expect to see he's going to come in with probably a rack and two small 112 cabinets. And sure enough, there would always be two SM57s or two, you know, U87s or whatever. And I, at the time, I was trying to be too clever and do this crazy technique that I had heard Michael Landau and Michael Thompson doing, where you mic the speaker cabinet and you send that to your mic preamp, and then that goes out. That's what I do at home, and it's great. But I tried. I showed up on a you know quote unquote big session doing that, and the engineer was like, "Well, wait, what are you talking about? You want me to you know mic your own and then send that back? I'm confused. Who is this kid?" You know, and I so again, I very quickly went, okay, you know what? I got to just fall in line and do what people are expecting me to do, at least at this stage of the game, you know? Yeah. Uh, you have a huge collection of guitars, amplifiers, and just gear. Yeah. Well, I'm a gearhead like everybody else. And I, when I first moved here, I, I only had maybe three guitars. And, um, I sort of felt like, well, I have my PRS. It can do everything. I, I can get any sound I need out of this thing. But um, one of the first sessions I did was like sort of this this kind of like indie movie where they, but they attempted up with all this Brian Setzer stuff. And so the composer said, you can do that thing, right? And I was like, yeah, I can, yeah, I can do that. And then uh, I think I went over to just, you know, this is like the early days. So I went over to check out the music or to meet with him or something. And he's like, well, where's, you don't have a Bigsby? Where, you need a Gretsch. Where's your Bigsby? Come on, man. I thought you were serious about this. And he was sort of half giving me a hard time, but half serious. And I, I went, you know what? He is right, though. That's that's part of the thing. So I went out and, uh, you know, basically spent probably more than I made on the session to track down a Gretsch. What did you buy? Bigsby. Out of curiosity. Uh, a, a 6120, you know, Chet yeah. Atkins, Nashville thing. Yeah. It sounds awesome. And it, the funny thing is I use it for stuff you know, far beyond just the Brian Setzer thing. It's it's really great. But, you know, that's all part of it. These finding these tiny little differences, subtle differences that really get the point across. Do you have a favorite instrument? 
You know, not really. I do kind of look at them as just tools in a toolbox. There's a Les Paul that I have that's really great. There's a guitar that somebody, my friend, friend Askin, he's uh, my guitar tech and he's a luthier here in town. He uh, he built this guitar that's really versatile. And uh, that's kind of my go-to, like if I'm just working here by myself and I need to move really fast. I saw a video with you with a red guitar that had four pickups on it. What was that? A red guitar with four I think it was red, but I had four pickups on it. And, and I looked at it and I thought, well, that's unusual. I'd have to see it to know. Maybe the it was like an optical illusion kind of thing. <laughs> maybe, maybe. It's on your site. It's one of the the main uh, videos. As soon as you hit it, it's, it's early in the video. Oh, okay. I'll go back and find it. I'll, <laughs> I'll send you an email and tell you, oh, it's this thing. Yeah, all right, all right. I read that George Augsburger designed your room, which is very cool because George is one of the best. And of course, he's taught so many people how to do it, and he's still doing it really well. So that always impresses me when I hear that somebody either has his monitors or, or you know, had the room done by him. You know what's funny? I reached out to a, a bunch of designers, and he was one of the few that kind of was very professional and got back to me and wanted to do the job. No big deal. So, yeah, it was great. I couldn't believe it. I think he also lives close by, so he kind of went, eh, that'll be easy. And yet your room does not look like an Augsburger room. I'm sure it sounds just like, you know, like all of them because yeah. that's what he does, but it doesn't look like a typical Augsburger room, which I think is very cool. You know, he consulted on, on everything. This was an addition to our house. We kind of actually like what Tim Pierce has. This is so this is over our garage. So it's all double walled, drop ceiling, floating floor kind of thing. And then I brought in George to basically go, okay, this is what you want to do for the dimensions. So if you put the bathroom here, that'll make the main room X long and then make the sidewalls X, you know, Y and then the ceiling should be such and such height, that kind of stuff. I'm just curious for zoning, what did you call it? <laughs> It's a master bedroom. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's permitted as such, and it's all, you know. Yeah. The funny thing is, actually, when um, the inspector, he had to, we were done, and everything was cool. We had the CFO. I mean, I don't know if you've done any construction, but that's like the golden ticket you want is that certificate of occupancy at the end of it. And there was one last little thing that he had to come back and sign off on. And it was like literally, or maybe I had to sign. And he was, oh, I'm in, he called me like kind of out of the blue. Hey, I'm in the neighborhood. Can you, can we do this right now? And I went, uh, sure. And he came over and he goes, uh, we're, we're just downstairs, you know, not even. And he goes, uh, so you recorded anything yet? <laughs> and, I kind of, and I'm sure my face was like a look of shock. And he goes, oh, it's totally fine. He goes, I used to build studios. I know what you're doing. It's, it's fine. You did it all permitted. You guys did it the right way. You know, enjoy kind of thing. So, yeah, it's great. I have a really good friend that has a studio in, in his basement and decided he wanted something bigger and also something that was uh, just a little bit more professional than what he had. So he decided he was going to build it. He had a lot next door. He was going to build it there. And he's on the side of a hill. And so this became a really big deal for him to do it. Yeah. And not only that, he had tough inspectors. So he had to call it a media room, I think, in order to make it work. But the worst part was he hired, you know, some of the best people, architects and acousticians and you name it. 
and he's had nothing but problems getting it together, uh, mostly because all these great people can't agree. <laughs> You're almost better off to have one person. It seems like everybody you talk to has hit some kind of major issue. I mean, we certainly had ours, and there was definitely a time where I had to just pick up the phone, call my architect, and go, hey, hang on, and then call the contractor. Hold on. Yeah. Okay, you got you both got me. Okay, what is it that you need to know? Okay, did that answer your question? Are we all can we play nice in the sandbox here? Is there any reason we, we you know? Yeah. All right. See you guys here tomorrow at eight a.m. Like you know, you you definitely need to be proactive about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that was one thing too. Like my wife, to her credit, she was like, "I don't want to spend all this money and then be stuck with just a recording studio. So let's just do it as a legit master bedroom, totally permitted, totally legal." totally fine and then you know at least that way we're you know it's a nice area we're improving on the house it's a smart financial decision too so, yeah yeah you know if it were up to me i'd be like living in the middle of nowhere which is guitars all over the house and stuff, <laughs> you have a nice amplifier collection and i saw that you also have a uh, a fractal is that something that you use a lot out of curiosity so the fractal i got I, it's funny you asked me about that. It, that thing is a little frustrating to me because I've had some issues with reliability and it is difficult to get it fixed being that I'm on the West Coast and they are on the East Coast. And uh, I sort of look at that as my, it's, it's a glorified pod. Like if I have to go to someone's house and have a self-contained rig, I'll take that. And that's just, that's everything in the box kind of thing. If I'm working here, obviously I'm I'm more old school. I have a bunch of heads that are wired to an amplifier switcher. And then that goes to a speaker cabinet, which is down in the garage, which has tons of blankets around it. And, and then it comes back up to the control room here. And I'm, you know, monitor, monitoring it like you would in a studio environment. So you're hearing what the microphone is actually hearing. So I'm not really using any type of plug-in or... Um, uh, simulator here. I mean, I have that stuff. And if I, if I'm really working super late or, or super early or something like that, I will do it and it's fine, but I still think there's a difference. And there's certainly a difference in terms of workflow and just printing as you go and committing and then building upon that layers upon layers upon layers. And then, and knowing that you're done and then just, you know, exporting everything and being done with it. You do a lot of online sessions. I think you do a lot. At least that's yep. what's on your site. And you say you have a 24-hour turnaround on that. Yeah, I need to take that off of there. <laughs> I, that, I must have written that before I was busy as I am now. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that, that seems pretty generous. I think I said, usually no problem. In, inquire for details, maybe. <laughs> Something. There's always a fine print, Bobby. Come yeah, on. yeah, right, 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 <laughs> right. That being said, and it's kind of the way of the world now in a way where there's so much that's done remotely, yeah. but do you find it more difficult doing online sessions where the client cannot attend? Yes. And actually, uh, this is something I learned from Tim. At this point, I'm pretty much, if it's somebody new that I've never worked for, and you know, what's funny is you can almost tell by the email whether this is going to be an easy job or this is going to be a difficult job. And unless I really think, okay, I know exactly what to do and there's no question, it's a requirement that if it's the first time working with someone, they have to either be here in person or be on Zoom. I have a way of using Zoom and audio movers simultaneously. They have to be there in real time and listen and say, yes, I like that. No, I don't like that. Okay, we're cool. 
everything sounds great. Send it to me. I like it. Because otherwise you get into that loop of, you know, it's one thing if I were a bass player where you pretty much, you give them a, a pass on one instrument and maybe a slightly different approach or something like that. But I'm, it's, to use our construction analogy, a lot of times with guitar, especially if it's a song, you're building a whole house around the guitars. You're starting with the foundation, you're putting all, you know, all this stuff around it, finishing touches and creating this entire arrangement. So if there's one thing that they don't like, you might have to redo everything. And yes, I, I used to run into that all the time. Now, knock on wood, I've worked with most of my uh, collaborators you know, so often that I kind of know, okay, they're going to like this, they're not going to like that. I know what to do. It, it's almost like a continuation of, even if it's a new song, I feel pretty confident. And in that case, I don't need them to necessarily be here while I work. But again, for somebody new, it's pretty much a requirement at this point. Are you being asked to do something very specific or are they just saying, hey, do what you do? It's all over the map. A lot of times it's finding it, you know, like they say, oh, I know what I want. And, but then they explain it and you're like scratching your head going, those two things sound very opposing. I'm not, you know, or they'll, you know, again, it's like one one person's bright is another person's ear piercing, you know. So if somebody is here or on Zoom, you know, it goes pretty fast. And actually, the visual thing is even helpful because you can see, oh, they're smiling, you know. Yeah, body or, language, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's so, such a big part of it. When you, and you've done a lot of film and television, the strike aside, yeah. but prior to the strike, had that slowed down for you? Not really. Certainly when COVID hit, I, like everybody else, I kind of went, oh man, what's going to happen here? But strangely... And I think actually a big part of it was that I was already really plugged into working remotely. If anything, things picked up then. And I do, maybe it's kind of that effect of as a, some people get squeezed out, then the people that are still here actually get more work. I heard the funniest analogy. Somebody said, uh, you know, the music business is like a pie eating contest, where if you win, you only get to eat more pie. <laughs> I love it. That's great. And it's kind of true. It's like, man, if I just work hard enough, I'll get to, you know, get to the next level. And then you get there and it's like, wow, there's okay, great. Now, but now I just have to keep, you know, it does. Yeah. That becomes, you know, that maybe a challenge is like keeping up with the workload at a certain point. Well, speaking of the workload, then how did you fit in a solo album, solo albums? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Well, I'm in a little bit of an, an insomniac, so that helped. <laughs> I like to uh, get up early. You know, the uh, COVID did help for with that too. I had uh, extra, you know, time not in the car commuting. I don't know. I, I think I'm a motivated person. It's something that's important to me. So yeah, I made a record, actually a few records over the last couple of years. I have one that's about to come out September 8th. And um, I'm really looking forward to that. I did it with uh, Jim Scott, the great engineer producer up at his studio in Santa Clarita. We did it all live in two days. Uh, it's a killer band. And it's sort of like, I've been sort of calling it like Jeff Beck meets Larry Carlton at an Allman Brothers concert. Yeah. So it's all instrumental, but it's uh, it's not going to like lose people. You don't need a music degree to like it. Wow, very cool. And I saw you did uh, something with John Robinson too, SRT. Yes, yeah. We put this fun little trio together about a year ago. 
and it sort of took on a life of its own. We uh, just kind of did it for fun. We did a record also like in two days, did the whole thing live. And uh, John had someone in Japan that had always wanted to bring him over. And so he thought, well, maybe they'd like to bring this trio over. So he sent them the record and they loved it. And we did a little tour of Japan. We played Osaka, Yokohama, Tokyo, all these clubs called Billboard Live Club. So there's, you know, three different clubs. We played, I think it was six shows. And it was great. And actually, incredibly, the record ended up getting picked up by a Japanese label over there that put it out. And we, while we were there, we went into Tower Records because record stores still exist in Japan. And I couldn't believe it. You know, we're walking around and it's like Friday night and Tower Records is packed with young people. I mean, it was so great to see. And actually, we wandered over to the instrumental music section and they had this big display with our band. You know, there's our faces and our records on the shelf. It was really cool to see. So that project is called SRT for Cinewick, Robinson and Town, the three members. Mm -hmm. Are you going to tour behind your album? Yes. Thank you for asking. I would have forgotten. So I have booked a tour in November, Southern California, mostly. I'm playing uh, November 1st through the 5th. I'm playing Solvang, Ismo Beach, Ventura, Los Angeles, and San Pedro. So I'd love it uh, for people to come out and check out the band. It's going to be all the same players who played on the record. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Really excited. Okay, last question then. And if you listen to my podcast, you know what's coming. What's the best piece of advice that maybe someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? For me, it really comes down to something simple, and it's just treat others as you would like to be treated. That's pretty simple. But it works in the music business especially. And it's not even necessarily like this altruistic thing. I mean, it really works from just a straight-up working standpoint. It's like... This is really how I built my career was just always putting myself in the position of like, okay, this composer is maybe asking me to do yet another revision on Friday night at nine o'clock when I've already been working on this thing for however many days or whatever. But I know they're under the gun and they're really meaning well, and I'm going to do it and do it with a smile and do it as fast as I can with the hopes that I will be, you know, the guitar player they always think of from here on out. And nine times out of 10, that actually really works. You can find out more about Andrew at andrewsinowick.com. That's Andrew Sinowick, S-Y-N-O-W-I-E-C.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 